Recording. Hey, this is um, Zane Horowitz in the Oregon Poison Center, and we're here for the September 2018 Toxicology Journal Club. It's going to be the first day of fall, and summer's over. It seems like, wow, it just disappeared like that. But we're doing a fellows-only journal club, so we've kind of kicked the uh, reviews up a little bit, so no case reports or anything in this one, just uh, talking about lead more specifically focusing on because a lot of things you can talk about lead about the chelation and its impact and uh, follow-up rather than uh, the acute toxicity of lead. I thought I'd talk and lay some groundwork first with an article called um, Implications of the New Center for Disease Control and Prevention Blood Level Reference and basically this is an article out of the American Journal of Public Health um, so actually a few years old at this point in June of 2014, but basically around that time, the what will be called the level of concern for a blood level of lead was changed from what it had been, which was 10 micrograms, down to five micrograms. And you know why did they do this, and what does it mean as far as impact beyond just changing a, a reference level in a lab? So in May of 2012, um, the CDC accepted the recommendations put forth by the Advisory Committee on Childhood Lead Poisoning. And they did a couple of things. One, they stopped using the term blood lead level of concern, so they went the opposite way. So there's no level of concern. They you know, reiterated the off-said phrase that there is no safe level. And now they use a reference level opposite of what I just said, of lead um, for the identification of children when they use the term elevated blood lead levels. Now, we can get away from even using levels because most journals now want you to use the term concentration instead of levels, so, but we'll go with the terminology expressed here. So previously, since 1991, it had been 10, and the new reference value is now 5 micrograms per deciliter. And if you look back where what that means historically, you got to go back and see how much that level has dropped. So back in 1960, uh, quote, an elevated blood lead level was above 60. We couldn't even imagine that now. And then it dropped to about 40 in the 70s, and it kept coming down until 1991, which is the last change before this current change at 10. And 10 was for essentially 20, 30 years had been level uh, that we called a level of concern. But now we're concerned with all concentrations and the level that is above the uh, two standard deviations on the NHANES survey is this level of five. Um, the level of concern was in and of itself never intended to describe a threshold of adverse effects. Uh, I was just showing who was higher than, like I said, standard deviations. Now, there's been studies that show levels below 10 continue to cause negative health consequences, especially neurologic consequences of cognitive impairment, auditory impairment, speech uh, difficulties, behavioral difficulties. And as we now know, many of these, despite chelation, and we're going to get into that with a couple of the articles, can be irreversible. So even though I can make the level lower, the impact on the patient, and the impact on society because of that patient can be quite high. And they talk about healthcare costs and special education needs and even increased incidence of violent crime. 
So the NTP, the National Tox Program, came out of a monograph in 2012, and they presented at that time a pretty comprehensive review to suggest evidence that levels even below five have decrements on IQ, which is probably the easiest thing to measure in real time. Um, and academic achievement, which is something they can prospectively measure as you go through uh, elementary school and beyond. There was a higher incidence of attention-related deficits, of behavioral problems, and they felt that the risk of, of the IQ loss was more profound as the level dropped below 10, we lost more points than levels that were above 10, where you still lost points, but not the same sort of um, frequency or level of decline. Um, so the new reference actually represents the 97.5 uh, percentile of blood le level concentrations in the United States based on the NHANES, which is the National Health and Nutritional Exam Survey, which comes out every year or every other year, where they measure loads and loads of elements and exposures and chemicals, including lead, in a variety of households in all, all the states. And they come up with a bell-shaped curve, and when you get to the 97.5 percentile, which represents two standard deviations, this is where they feel the level is that represents children who are above that level. And basically, if you do a little bit of math and you look at some of the NHANES data from 207 to 210, it still says something like over half a million U.S. children between the ages of 1 and 5 have a level above 5 micrograms. So there's still a lot of people out there. Um, then that's based on like 2.5% of the U.S. population based on that curve we talked about, and 0.8% of children still have a level above 10, just referencing the old range. And as we look at some of the studies, depending on what years they were done, they either use 5 or 10, or sometimes they talk about both of them. Um, but actually in 2011, when the CDC reported uh, some results of testing, some of which were not broad-based, everyone getting tests, but more focused testing, they estimated that 3.5 million children younger than 72 months who were screened for lead, doesn't know why they were screened for lead, had uh, levels above that threshold. Uh, um, so if we um, look at all the resources that go into education, to risk mitigation, to getting blood levels and doing surveillance, to doing a follow-up on homes, to abating the paint, abating their china, abating other hobbies that they may be exposed to, and now most recently with our knowledge that it's in the water as well. Um, Flint, Michigan certainly is not the only place where there's water levels that are elevated with lead. There's tons and tons of cities with uh, old uh, lead piping uh, beneath their, uh, their streets. Um, but if you look at the whole resources, it ends up being lots and lots of money. Somewhere in this article, I think they estimated it at uh, nearly $51 billion as the, I mean, this is like 10 year old dollars in 2008. The impact just on childhood lead poisoning was that. Now, to break that down, that's only about one tenth of that is in direct costs attributed to surveilling and treating lead. The other 90% of it is what they read as projected economic predict productivity loss. Mm -hmm. And so that's always a very fuzzy thing, I think, to truly estimate. But there it is. It's out there, $51 billion. And 
as we will see, treating lead and making the number lower doesn't really change a lot of these outcomes as far as the risks. So the main thing is prevention. So it's a, you say over and over again, this is a completely uh, preventable uh, disease. Um, there's a variety of other statistics thrown around. I'm not going to belabor them, um, but um, we've done better when we've taken lead out of the gasoline, when we banned lead from paint, and we probably still have a lot, not a lot, but still more work to do in, on going around and surveilling old piping and variety of homeopathic meds and other things there people are exposed to. There's a long section here about federal funding. I'm not going to get into that with this uh, journal club, but it basically creates the argument on why there's this constant battle between what we should need or what we could do in an optimal world with all the funds versus what we're actually doing now. But as a conclusion, um, the new level is here. It's been here since 2012. It's five. Um, again, it's a level not of concern, but a level that represents what perhaps two and a half percent of the childhood population still has above and may have a loss of IQ and other CNS risk factors as a result of, and it still represents uh, two standard deviations from the mean. So there are children that have even higher levels than that and many that have lower levels of that. Um, so that's the groundwork. And so when you talk about in your papers, levels of five and 10, you know, where and what error of time they come from. The first study beyond that that I wanted to go into uh, was a great study because just as to its length of how many years it took to kind of achieve their results. A lot of these studies that we've looked at in the U.S. have looked at, you know, levels drawn in early childhood and they follow them through school age, IQs and things like that. This actually looked at um, children that were involved in lead surveillance and followed them out to their mid to late 30s in New Zealand. So a huge longitudinal follow-up on these folks as far as what sort of issues they had compared to an age-matched cohort. So this is published in JAMA and um, I don't know what the year is. 2017. 2017, so not too long ago. So all right, tell us about this. Perfect. Um, so this is the Association of Childhood Blood Lead Levels with Cognitive Function and Socioeconomic Status at Age 38 Years with IQ Change and Socioeconomic Mobility Between Childhood and Adulthood, and just as Zane was telling us, pretty lofty goal, as they mention in their... Um, that in They mentioned that their uh, primary outcome is to determine... Um, how lead exposure is associated with declines or changes in IQ and socioeconomic mobility, which I think is is uh, quite difficult, but with the cohort that they have is actually something that could feasibly be done. So the way they design their study, it's a retrospective cohort study, and they have this, um, this very large cohort of um, patients followed in the Dunedin Multiplied Disciplinary Health and Development Study. So they enrolled um, children at birth between April 1972 and March 1973. And so the way they collected their data is they wanted to, um, they first took this cohort of people born in the 70s and at the current time they would be 38 years old. So they started with this cohort, picked people who are still alive from that cohort at 38. And then the last um, thing they did was they picked anyone who had 
lead testing at age 11 specifically. And what's pretty phenomenal looking back at this is they did assessments on their cohort at birth and uh, they unlisted on page 1245, which is the second page in the article. It's at ages 3, 5, 7, 9, 11, 13, 15, 18, 21, 26, 32 years, and then 38. So they've been following these people throughout their lives, which is just an amazing reservoir for a data uh, population study. And for the background, what they notice and explain is that during the 70s and 80s, there's actually a pretty significant lead levels that were in the air from gasoline and other sources, and that this resulted in a lead burden on the community throughout all socioeconomic statuses. Um, and then they also provide the background that up to this point, the longest um, cognitive follow-up has been only 30 years in a cohort that was only 43 patients, so it was too small to really um, draw any associative conclusions that they could. So, um, going through, so they picked this cohort, they found kids who had been um, tested for lead at age 11 and then they did um, several studies and measures of these people at age 38. So one of the things they did was they did cognitive performance looking at the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale um, 4 and so it gives them an age, uh, it gives them a score range and helps generate a full-scale IQ. Um, and then they also divided that into several, into four different um, indexes so and these were used for secondary outcomes so those included verbal comprehension perceptual reasoning working memory and processing speed so they could kind of break down if lead had a specific effect on one of these um, so their two primary outcomes were to look at if there was any change in their IQ from when they were tested as a kid and then when they were tested and when they were older and then same thing with socioeconomic status so the way they did socioeconomic status is they looked at people's professions and they were kind of graded on a scale of one to six depending on how much training they would need to complete that profession so as an example like a medical professional would be at group six but then a non-skilled laborer would be group one um, and then they did take into account a lot of other specific things. So like people who are unemployed, they accounted for that by using their last profession. And for people who were homemakers, they did it, they imputed it from their education, their highest level of education. So I thought it was good that they made up for those things. Um, and then they did statistical analysis. And what's interesting is at the beginning of their analysis, they say that they compared differences between those with without blood lead data and those with blood level data. But there's no real group that they're taking and looking at that had no significant level or a level below five. And they do note that they're looking at two things. They were looking at the um, level of concern that used to be 10, but now also the international, so they said the historic international, just as Zane was mentioning, the historic international level of concern at 10, but then the, um, with now the normal reference value less than five. So they did break it down for those less, but they didn't give us a cohort or a control rather. They didn't really give us people who were not exposed at all. They just did people who didn't get testing, which doesn't mean that they weren't exposed to lead. Um, so uh, one of the important things they want to put forth is in figure one, just shows that no matter what socioeconomic status you are in, your 
the distribution of people who are exposed to lead is about the same. So they have high, middle, and low socioeconomic status, and all their the distribution of um, blood, lead, they say level, but our concentration is the same. And then they did, um, they expressed the change in IQ and socioeconomic status. If there was a drop, it was presented as like a negative number. And just to, I won't go through all the details of their statistical analysis, um, but what they found is that for every five um, micrograms per deciliter of lead, lead concentration, for every five, you get a decrease in your IQ of negative 1.6. Um, and then they also controlled that for mothers who smoke cigarettes and low birth weight. And with that, that was the control, which you can see on table three, which is on the one, two, three, on the fourth page of the study. So that's one, negative 1 1.6 after they do for controls. Um, they also found that an association between higher levels and a they say a downward social mobility, so, and that was listed as, let me see if they give the number. It, there was some drop, but it's interesting because if you look at their table of socioeconomic status, so in table A, they use their adult occupation by their childhood, or their adult IQ by their lead levels, and actually there's the peak, <laughs> like at a blood level of six to 10, it's almost like a little bell curve so maybe a little mm -hmm. bit of lead uh, it obviously doesn't reach statistical significance because the confidence intervals are so large but then they have the socioeconomic status and if you trace it out there's this little decline here so they say there's a 1.9 units lower score in your socioeconomic status associated with higher blood levels as a kid um, and then they say the effect sizes for these IQs and the socioeconomic status are too small to be of clinical concern. And I think they do a really good job in the discussion of their study of noting their limitations and also not drawing like um, overwrought conclusions or hard bearing conclusions that this is the cause. This is, they say this is only an association um, and that is a hypothesis and it could cause this trouble over time. And they say that one of their strengths is just that they use this large socioeconomic um, economic, uh, variable group, and then they had uh, such a long-term follow-up. The problems that I personally had with this is that they're drawing an isolated blood, they're doing this all based on an isolated blood lead level at age 11. And it, what we've learned so far is that if the time that lead has a most profound impact on the development of your cognition is in your youngest ages. So let's say you're at 11 and you have a lower number, but as a kid, um, you know, when you were age one or two, you were eating paint chips that had lead in them. That's gonna completely make all this data unreliable. And so that's a really big problem, despite it being such a nice follow-up and for a decent period of time and a really like great undertaking. The other thing is that they don't have a control. So we don't see a control group of people with no lead exposure who had minimal levels and following them over time to see what their so how their socioeconomic change because if we had that data and they also had the exact same curve there's something else going on that's making that's driving this socioeconomic limiting people's socioeconomic status for other reasons and it, I feel like you can't really draw very strong conclusions even though they're saying there's just this association by looking at this one group I feel like you can't even make a strong association without having a control of any type. Um, so those are the biggest problems that I had. 
Um, Zane, did I miss anything? Yeah, no, I think those are the big points. I mean, they're certainly to be credited for following people for 38 years, but I agree if you were going to go back and do it absolutely perfectly, in retrospect, you draw blood levels on these kids when they were one years old and two years old and use that as your sort of baseline and then see, they don't really talk about who got chelated or not, but most of these kids' blood levels were below 30, so even based on, well, at least it was the U.S. accepted norms at the time, it'd be unlikely that any of them got, quote, treated, but they certainly could have been remediated where people went into their homes and made sure the paint wasn't peeling and things like that. Um, so we don't know by the time they got to age 11, were they already, like, fixing the problem? Or why is that the baseline they chose? You know, this would have been if they were all born in 72, 73, they were all be 83, 84. By then, lead paint and lead gasoline were sort of on the way out. And at least in the US they were, and I presume in New Zealand probably as well. Um, but I, I did uh, solve one of the criticisms that is often said of other lead studies, which is, well, you're always gonna find these IQ things, but how do you tease out the impact of poverty, how do you impact of uh, probably the, the racial mix of this population you're studying. Um, these are all, you know, for better or worse, uh, white New Zealanders living in a mid-sized city, um, you know, and across at least their socioeconomic income spectrum, they all got exposed to the same gasoline and the same lead paint because that's the way the homes and cars were back then. So there was some strength in, in showing that, no, it's not a, just a, an issue as people have tried to criticize other articles of just poverty and nutrition and economic opportunity. It's an issue of, hey, they really lost IQ points. You know, they really had social downward mobility as a result of higher lead exposure. It's not just that they were living in an inner city somewhere without any, any opportunities to, to go socially upward from there. So um, I thought it was an interesting study. It, it was one more recent studies, and it definitely points out, I think, what, what happens to people over time is that these issues occur, and they're subtle. Uh, certainly nobody came in complaining of, I don't have good verbal reasoning anymore, or any of these things that they tested, but when you actually look at it and test it, um, it turns out to be a, a difference. So the, mm -hmm. so the big question, which really is a, a bit of an older question, is this, let's say we get those folks and we treated those folks with these sort of not really high levels but in, intermediate levels of lead, will they turn out better on these scoring systems of cognition and everything else? If, I know their lead level will go down, I think everyone understands that, but will the neurologic functions get better? So one of the landmark studies is this one, which is now a few decades old from the New England Journal um, in uh, 2001 uh, by the uh, Treatment of Lead Exposed Children trial group, which was this big trial. So Adam, tell us about that. Sure. Um, so uh, this is a study from 2001 entitled The Effect of Chelation Therapy with Succimer on Neuropsychological Development in Children Exposed to Lead. And so this uh, uh, study essentially attempts to answer these questions that were kind of raised by the previous study. We know we have this population of kids who seem to have a negative ad effect of lead. Um, it's not fatal, it doesn't necessarily shorten their life, it might, but it doesn't necessarily shorten their life, but is this having kind of an existential human impact on the course of their lives? 
and um, to what extent can we do something about it. So just to quickly summarize, and then I'll go into the article, um, this is a double-blinded uh, randomized control study uh, following two groups, groups of patients, uh, with uh, both with blood lead concentrations from uh, 20 to 44 micrograms per uh, deciliter, sorry, per liter. Um, and the um, one arm received succimer and the other received placebo. And then it was followed, was there an effect? And it showed that succimer does decrease the lead concentration, but it does not necessarily seem to have any other clinical effects. Um, so the endpoints of this study were uh, the decrease in blood lead concentration and essentially a, an entire battery of neuropsychiatric testing. And um, those were the endpoints. So um, the uh, background is that uh, 780 children with blood lead levels between 20 and 44 micrograms per deciliters were uh, enrolled. They were randomized. Um, it was double-blinded, placebo-controlled, um, and uh, it, they were followed uh, for six months, but ultimately it also for uh, 36 months, so for a three-year follow-up period. Um, the children were very young. They were about six months, uh, sorry, 12 months to 33 months of age. And uh, at the end of this, they were, uh, their IQ was tested, um, as was a host of other tests, which I'll go into. All right, so. Um, so, uh, during this time, uh, the children were uh, enrolled, uh, they had serial blood uh, lead concentrations measured, and uh, the investigators uh, were, of course, blinded. Uh, they did, um, they treated both groups uh, the same. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting was if the uh, children had persistently elevated lead levels during the course of the study, they actually went to the children's homes and did a functional decontamination. So they vacuumed, they changed, they, they actually brought in carpenters and they sanded um, peeling paint and they kind of did home maintenance in both groups. Um, so they, they really were doing uh, the usual therapy in both or kind of the ideal therapy in both. Um, and uh, towards the end of this, um, they, they did uh, kind of a series of these neuropsychological testings that were essentially um, used for whatever age the age group the uh, child was in. So one of these was the uh, Bailey Scales of Infant Development. Another was the Wexler Preschool and Primary Scales of Intelligence uh, Revised. Another was the Neuropsychological Assessment. And they also tested IQ. Okay. They also tested the IQ of the parents uh, and attempt, attempted to essentially uh, control for parental IQ, uh, home environment, and as many other factors as, as was possible. The uh, initial study was uh, designed to be to have a power of 82%, but they actually were able to enroll so many um, participants that the actual power was 96%. So that's that's kind of impressive. Um, they also um, actually reviewed were the therapies actually being taken. So they did um, towards you know throughout the uh, treatment arm, they did a uh, pill counting. And uh, they found that approximately 76% uh, of the capsules from both arms um, were, were used, which kind of is what you'd expect if you're prescribing succimer. Uh, but it was about the same in both arms. Okay. And, and of course, the trial followed an intention to treat um, uh, kind of setup. 
so what they found was, uh, so one of the things they did was they uh, plotted uh, blood lead concentration uh, per week. And in the placebo arm, you see this kind of gradual decline over the course of a year. You know, there's this kind of gentle downsloping of the blood lead concentration. You could think of that as kind of the natural clearance of lead. Um, in the succimer arm, you, we see uh, within about one week, we see a precipitous decline in the lead to almost half. Um, then followed by um, a sharp uptick in the lead, which uh, is presumed to be essentially just return of lead from the bone compartment, and then uh, a decrease, and then kind of a more, uh, kind of a longer sustained, gradual decline. And toward uh, towards a year out, the blood lead concentrations were identical in both arms of the study. Hmm. Right. Um, so, what they found in terms of the neuropsychological testing was essentially no difference between the two. There was a slight trend towards um, better scores in the um, placebo arm, actually, but it was not considered statistically significant, mm -hmm. uh, as well as um, kind of the parent's perception of hyperactivity in child's behavior. But again, it was very minimal and not statistically significant. Um, so what the authors uh, concluded, and I agree with this, is that the emphasis really needs to be on prevention rather than treatment for this group. Yeah, I mean, this was a sort of a breakthrough study. I mean, at the time, people, you know, were debating without great science, like, we should just lower the threshold to treat and just treat everyone we find, open up these lead clinics in every major metropolitan area where there's lead paint and all these problems. And uh, the drug, when it was approved, when DMSA succimer was approved, was treated, approved to treat blood lead levels above uh, 44, 45 and above, which is where the initial trials then were done. And this is sort of like, well, what about the kids below that? Mm -hmm. And it showed that, yeah, we can make the lead levels lower. Certainly in the first week, we can, we can drop them down to near normal. And, uh, you know, the one of the criticisms people have said, although it's a trivial one, is that they used a slightly different dosing schedule than we use nowadays. So mm -hmm. <coughs> typically we use a dr the drug three times a day for five days and then twice a day for a week. They used a little bit more drug per, meter, per square meter, which is how they calculated it, for seven days, followed by probably the same dose thereafter. So whether those extra two days really makes a big difference. Probably uh, not, not really. The other thing they found, people have scratched their heads about and don't have a good cause and effect, but it's just a association, was that the children who received succimer had a higher incidence of trauma and trauma ER visits hmm. than the people who received placebo. Mm -hmm. It was 15% versus 10%. Um, and people said, huh? It doesn't make any sense because it's not like their balance is worse or anything else that you can figure out mm -hmm. uh, about these kids. Why should they be injured? And it's just one of those, we found it, we reported it, we say it's there, and I don't have a good explanation. Nobody has a good explanation why that should occur. There's nothing about the drug or the dropping your lead levels that should make you more prone to traumatic injuries. Mm -hmm. But it was a good randomized trial as far as compliance with the med, 76% is pretty good. When you're talking about a drug you gotta take for at least two to three weeks. And um, basically they said, uh, this is not about treatment, this is not about making this brand new drug available to everybody, this is about 
don't abandon our efforts to uh, clean up these homes. And, and they did, like I said, it's a great job. They, they went in, they mopped the floors, they did mop, you know, lead level wipes afterwards, they yeah. vacuumed the carpets, they cleaned up the peeling paint. I mean, they really had a program where they did a, a pretty um, awesome job at you know, reducing their body burden. Mm -hmm. So if you do that, the outcome, as far as lead levels, after a year is about the same. So, I mean, that's where, that's where our current standards for treatment are. It's like below 44, at least on paper, you don't necessarily need to treat, but we get some people who sort of like want to be treated due to parental anxiety or whatever reasons. Um, and I don't think it's that risky of a drug to take as other than there's risk of trauma is really not a lot of side effects And I'm not sure that's a real risk. It's just that's a, that happened in this weird study So let's sort of go explore a little further with two papers here. The first looks at all of the animal studies is like a comprehensive review in J-Med talks um, From a few years ago on all the animal studies on lead which gives us a little insight into how it works and uh, We'll start with that one first yeah, so uh, I have that paper. It's called the Scientific Basis for Chelation, Animal Studies, and Lead Chelation. This is uh, the Journal of Medical Toxicology in 2013. Uh, and like Zane said, this is um, basically a write-up of a series of animal studies in non-human primates and rats uh, that that was done in this one lab. And so um, the point of this is really just to help. Um, help sort of describe the efficacy and clinical utility of chelation treatment, uh, specifically of succimer uh, as it uh, pertains to lead exposure. And so, um, you know, they sort of make the point in their background that, you know, we have in vitro studies and we have data about, you know, succimer and, and, and lead, but um, but it's, it's difficult to put it into context without, um, an actual in vivo study, and obviously, since we can't do that in humans, um, non-human primates are sort of the next best thing, and um, and they also include some rat studies as well. And so they're looking to answer three questions. Uh, one, what is the extent of body lead reduction with chelation, and specifically, uh, um, is brain lead reduced with chelation? And do reductions in uh, blood lead accurately reflect reductions in brain lead? So that's their first question. Their second question is outlined here. It's can succimer treat uh, can succimer treatment alleviate the neurobehavioral impacts of lead poisoning? So, uh, you know, say we can get it out of the brain, uh, does that do anything? Is that clinic clinically relevant at all? Uh, and then the third question is is succimer safe essentially? So, does succimer treatment in the absence of lead poisoning, if I just give a person succimer, are there negative effects on neurobehavioral issues? Issues. So, sort of outlining how safe is this medication that we're giving people. Um, so, uh, the first section of the paper tries to address the first question, um, and so that again is what is the extent of um, body lead reduction and elimination with succimer versus the cessation of lead exposure alone? So, is giving a person succimer uh, do you reduce lead faster, or is it more efficacious than just stopping the exposure to lead? Um, so the first part of the study is done in non-human primates. They essentially um, had these monkeys and they um, started giving them oral doses of lead uh, to achieve a level of around 40 to 45 micrograms per deciliter. Um, and then um, there is, on, in figure one, I guess none of you guys really have this paper in front of you, but um, there's basically a 
uh, diagram of how they did the thing. So um, in the first year of life, there was lead exposure. Um, and then they have the uh, sex and circulation. So they either got one or two sex and circulations. Um, and there's a nice graph on figure two showing the blood lead levels, uh, sorry, the blood lead concentrations uh, of these animals uh, throughout the first, um, at the first couple years of life. So um, there is a, a steady increase in lead in all animals uh, as they're giving, as they're getting oral lead. Uh, as they get weaned um, to to a different diet, there's a drop in all of the animals, and they make a point of saying that nothing happened. There wasn't chelation. It's just that they were weaned from their uh, they their diet essentially changed. And so then there's again a steady increase, and then uh, the animals either got uh, chelation dose. Um, they either got a chelation dose and removed from the lead source, or they got a chelation dose and then um, got more lead. Um, so there's a first chelation, a second chelation, sorry, uh, in all animals, but uh, one group was removed from lead after the first chelation, the other one had lead continued to, uh, they continued to get exposed to lead. And so um, in figure two there, it basically shows that there's a significant reduction um, after the first chelation. But compared to uh, the placebo group, the, the group that really just got removed from lead, uh, there's really no difference in the lead level. So it seems as if uh, in this group, uh, or at least in this experiment, the uh, being given succimer and being removed from the lead source and just given placebo seems to be equally efficacious as far as um, whole blood levels go. Mm -hmm. Um, so by the end of the 19 days, they got 19 days of treatment. There's no measurable difference in, um, I'm sorry, that was a different part of the study, but there's essentially no measurable difference in any of these. So it doesn't, doesn't seem to make a difference. Um, then the next thing they did was they, um, they measured the urine uh, elimination of lead from these animals. And, um, and you can see that in uh, figure four. So they basically had, um, they basically measured um, the lead excretion uh, in the urine versus the vehicle. And there's a significant uh, increase in urine elimination in the first few days. So there's this huge peak in urine lead as you, as you chelate animals. Um, and then it sort of tapers off. But the first five days seem to be um, very dramatic. And then it's sort of like, tapers off. So we're chelating people for days and days and days and days, and it seems like the uh, urine elimination mostly happens in the initial five days. Um, so then uh, they also talked about uh, how there seemed to be a, a variation uh, between animals. So they compared different animals to each other as far as their total lead elimination uh, over the first five days. And there, uh, there's uh, figure five here. Uh, that shows a significant variation in uh, the different uh, lead excretion. So there's like four or five animals that just have a ton of urinary excretion and a bunch of the other animals really don't have that much. Mm -hmm. uh, the vehicle is not very easily seen, so but all of them essentially had more or equal to the vehicle, uh, which is the placebo. Um, but uh, there's just like a few animals that have an incredible amount of, uh, of urinary lead excretion, which sort of shows that there is either some sort of like innate physiologic factor or biologic factor that um, dictates how much urinary excretion there might be um, 
uh, in the lead. Or, sorry, in uh, in response to succimer. And then they also did a study where they looked at fecal excretion of lead uh, and showed that um, there, and, and compared it to the urinary excretion of lead in, in animals that got succimer, and they showed that um, there's an increased urinary excretion uh, with succimer, but sort of at the cost of fecal excretion. So you have this fecal excretion uh, normally, um, and when you get succimer, you seem to pee out a lot of lead, but there's also a decrease in your fecal excretion of lead. Um, so overall, it seems like, um, as far as their serum studies, uh, succimer seems to increase the urinary excretion of lead, but over the long term, like over days and days and days, the serum level is essentially the same. There's a little bit of area under the curve change where um, you have a smaller area under the curve if you did that for your serum blood level over days with uh, getting succimer, uh, but the ultimate uh, endpoint is not changed uh, with succimer treatment as far as your lead concentration goes. Does that make sense? So basically, you're, you sort of you sort of decrease like over over a week, say you have a lower lead concentration each day. So your serum lead concentration over days is less, but your endpoint is the same. Does that make sense? Yeah. Were they is that comparing the groups that were given lead, like in, comparing the groups that got lead, like in between the chelation treatments, chelation treatments? I'm sorry. What was the comparison of the groups for that? I was just getting mixed up because there were so many different. Yeah, there's a lot of different <laughs> groups in this, um, and so what they what it comes down to is this here. So blood lead levels. Um, if you just look at table or figure three here, there's uh, blood lead levels with um, with succimer. So these people got just the like a, a lead loading dose, and then they got succimer chelation. And basically, when when you give succimer there's this huge decrease in uh, blood lead concentrations. Uh, so your area under the curve becomes lower, mm -hmm. but, but after succimer is done, there's this rebound mm. that happens, and they ultimately end up essentially at the same spot. Of people who are not uh, chelated at all. Yes, yeah. Oh. Primates were not. Yeah, primates. primates. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah, and so, I mean, like, as long as they keep being fed lead in their feed, I mean, the level keeps going up despite getting one or two chelations with succimer. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you don't eliminate the source, you're not going to change their blood lead levels. Right. Uh, but then even this one, figure three, there's really only the initial loading dose. They don't continue to feed these animals lead, it looks like, uh, in figure three. Is that what you're... That was my interpretation of this. Was yeah, this is not. So they, they got an initial dose of lead, and then everyone stopped getting lead, or all the animals mm. stopped getting lead, and one group got succimer and one group got vehicle. And the, the animals that just got removed from the lead had sort of a steady decline, whereas the succimer animals mm. had this like this like very dramatic decline. Then they had a rebound once succimer stopped, and they just ended up yeah. in the same spot. Yeah, anyway. conceptually, it looks almost like the graph from mm -hmm. the study that Adam just mm -hmm. presented, mm -hmm. which was in children, except this is much contracted. This is over 28 days, not over the course of a year. Mm -hmm. Um, so the next part of the study is uh, to answer the second question, and that is, is brain lead reduced with chelation, and do reductions in blood accurately reflect reductions in brain lead? And that's important because that's the end organ uh, that's affected, or at least we think, I mean, we know in lead, there's obviously that's, that's what we're most worried about. So we might be able to get it out of the blood quicker, uh, even if they end up at the same place, but does it help get it out of the brain? 
uh, and that's what this is attempting to answer. Um, so this is done in both rodents and adult primates. Um, so animals were treated with lead for five weeks and then lead exposure was ceased and five days later they were treated with uh, succimer or placebo. Um, and then they essentially did brain biopsies on the animals to see like in various regions of the brain um, after the succimer treatment or, or placebo treatment was there a reduction in uh, brain concentrations in certain areas. Um, and so um, the first graph I want to look at is, sorry, figure 10. Again, I guess you guys don't have this, but um, that basically says, uh, so these are the levels in the um, vehicle and succimer uh, animals prior to treatment. And then here is the level, uh, the, the concentrations in those areas. So they did prefrontal cortex, frontal lobe, hippocampus, and the striatum. And there's essentially no difference in any of these between the succimer and the vehicle. So it seems like, at least in this study, which is pretty good, I thought, they are not getting any difference in um, lead concentrations in pretty much all regions of the brain that they tested. Um, which is pretty interesting. Uh, and then there's the, they loaded these, uh, some of these animals with um, a stable tracer to really look at, uh, they did this like a couple days before succimer treatment. So all these animals got fed oral lead for a long time and then like a couple days before. I'm not fully clear on why they did this, but um, they basically gave them this um, stable radioactive tracer. And what they said was it started looks at um, elimination of lead given a couple days before. Like that's specifically what they're looking at. Um, and again, they really showed no difference uh, in any of these. The only thing that they outline here is um, the prefrontal cortex. Um, there's a significant difference between the um, succimer group and the um, and the vehicle group uh, as far as the lead concentrations in the prefrontal cortex with the radioactive tracer, which indicates that there's probably continued uptake of lead. Um, when there is no succimer given. So if you get a lead exposure a couple days before, like if, if you get a lead exposure, um, there's probably just continued uptake over for a while. Um, of course, the, these radioactive tracers were given IV. So um, it's difficult to kind of say what the uh, uptake in the brain would be like in a, in a non-IV exposure. Um, okay, and then there is also, um, Let's see. Uh, the third part of the of the thing, uh, or of, of the series of experiments, which was can succimer treatment alleviate the neurobehavioral impacts of lead poisoning? So, in the first section, we basically saw that there is an initial decrease in um, blood concentrations, uh, but they end up at the same place. In the second part, we saw that there is um, essentially no significant um, no significant difference in uh, brain lead concentrations in various areas between succimer treated animals and uh, placebo treated animals. So then the question remains, um, can succimer treatment alleviate neurobehavioral impacts of lead poisoning? And so uh, these tests were all done in rats. Um, and what they did was a series of neurobehavioral testing in, um, in rats. And there was a control group a uh, moderate lead group, a high lead group, and then a moderate lead group with succimer and a high lead group with succimer. So uh, you've got control, you've got moderate lead amounts, high lead amounts, and then they got treated with succimer. Um, and so what they showed in this 
um, in this series of experiments is summarized in table two, and they essentially said that um, there were uh, there was impaired learning ability in the moderate um, in the moderate led group, but there was a succimer benefit. Uh, and then it seemed like there wasn't a succimer benefit for anything else. So there was impaired learning ability, attention dysfunction, uh, impaired inhibitory control. So there was no benefit to succimer uh, for the moderate led group in anything except impaired learning ability. So um, these animals had impaired learning ability at the moderate led level. When they were given succimer, uh, they had an improvement uh, in their symptoms. Um, and that seemed to be the only group that really got helped. Um, so for instance, the high lead group, um, there was an effect on the impaired learning, or there was impaired learning ability uh, in the high lead group, but succimer did not help them at all. Um, and then um, there was also, um, yeah, okay, sorry. Um, is there anything else in here that was important? Um, you know, I mean, it's always hard to do learning and what that means to a rat. In a, in a, in a, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it was like they shine the light and then the rat had to like hit yeah. the lever kind of things. So yeah, it had to like stick its means. nose in there for like ten seconds, and then like a pellet of food came out, and that, and that was how they did their learning. And then the attention was assessed by like it would they'd like let the rat into the chamber, <laughs> and like they would wait a while before they shine the light, mm. uh, and so that that gave them an idea of like what kind of attention the rat had. So like it's already learned that like when the light comes on, you gotta go over to that door and stick your nose in to get your food pellet. Mm. Uh, but uh, then they would let them in and then wait for like a while before they shine the light. So the rat has to be paying attention to see mm. the light mm. and go get its food. Mm. So what that was learned. What that means, I'm not sure. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, it's tough to, to translate these into, into human studies. And so the last part of it, uh, the last question that they try and answer is, um, does succinct treatment in the absence of lead poisoning produce negative effects on neurobehavioral measures? So one, is this safe to be giving people, especially if we're not entirely sure that it's that efficacious? Uh, at least from these um, animal studies. And then two, they make the point that it's being used for a lot of things, like they make the point that like people are giving it for autism for like no apparent reason. Uh, so is succinct actually safe? And according to them, um, it probably is not 100% safe. So they basically gave this to control animals versus, they, they, they gave animals either control or succinct only. They were not lead exposed animals. And succinct had, um, neurobehavioral implications in all in basically like statistically significant neurobehavioral impl implications across a bunch of different parameters that they um, tested so visual discrimination attention and sustained attention all had uh, the animals were all worse at those things when they were given succimer alone versus control so essentially uh, if you're a rat or <laughs> if any of this actually translates to, translates to humans succimer is not completely benign uh, as far as your neurobehavioral stuff goes. So overall, uh, it may not pull out as much um, as much out of the blood as we think. Uh, and if you just get away from your exposure, you're probably going to end up at the same place. But in those acute, you know, the first few days, if you're like really encephalopathic, if that area under the curve ultimately makes a difference in your recovery, then then it seems like it probably pulls a good amount of lead out in those first few days, but you just end up in the same place. 
uh, if you're an animal, of course. Uh, and then does it pull it out of the brain if you biopsy people's brains after they were light exposed? Um, you know, if this translates into humans, it seems like there's probably no difference in brain lead concentrations in various areas of the brain. Um, and then sort of lastly, it seems like there are only certain scenarios in which succimer might help with neurobehavioral issues versus control, uh, and that succimer might itself not necessarily be all that benign. Um, so that was what I got out of the paper. Yeah, and it was a pretty comprehensive review. Of, I mean, a lot of their own animal studies, but basically showing, again, that primary prevention is like super, super important because this drug that we have, even though it's a good chelator and it does take lead levels down and makes your urine lead levels go up, doesn't really get it out of your brain and certainly doesn't get out of the important parts of the brain. And if we test the brain functions that are whatever you can jump from an animal brain functioning maze thing or push the lever thing, doesn't really change any of that. And in fact, they may actually do worse in those scenarios where you're overused or excessively prescribed succimer for people who don't have lead po or animals that don't have lead poisoning as a precondition. So uh, question is, do we have alternatives? And previously, before succimer was available, um, we used to admit all these kids for like IV, um, first they get IM, BAL, and then they get IV sodium and calcium EDTA. You know, and a lot of sort of, I think the uh, older lead docs who are treating these people say, oh, you find a kid with lead level and it's in that higher range, in that 60, 70, 80 range, you gotta admit them all, and you gotta give them IV, EDTA, and get it down. So um, in this pretty comprehensive review we're about to look at next from Clintox, uh, from 2009, they looked at all, I mean literally all, every nook and cranny of the literature of DMSA and EDTA. So rather than go through everything, I'm going to let Adrian summarize some of the really good pharmacokinetics that are introduced here, some summary of the conclusions, and a little bit about what we haven't talked about that much except for the some studies about the adverse reactions of both of these <coughs> agents which are present. Yeah, so this uh, published in 2009, comparison of sodium calcium editate um, and succimer in the treatment of inorganic lead poisoning. So uh, this article reviewed all the experimental and clinical studies that have um, compared the efficacy of these two agents. They looked at how it impacts lead um, urine uh, excretion, blood lead concentrations, as well as other tissue concentrations. They looked at um, the resolution of like symptoms and survival, and they also looked at the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic aspects of it and looked at adverse um, effects of the treatment. So very comprehensive. I'll start out by talking about the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So EDTA, uh, it is absorbed poorly from the GI tract, and for this reason, it's always um, administered parenterally. And so it is distributed rapidly throughout the extracellular space, and it's pretty much confined to the extracellular space. Um, it, there's limited evidence out there, but it looks like it pretty much doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Maybe it slowly can cross the blood-brain barrier, but um, not much goes through into the brain. So EDTA, it's not metabolized at all. It's, a loose, uh, it's eliminated exclusively um, by the kidneys, and this is very dependent on the GFR. The um, elimination half-life is about 20 to 60 minutes. 
Uh, what happens as far as the chelation of lead, uh, it involves this exchange of this, uh, if you guys look at the structure here, there's this central calcium um, ion. And so what happens is it uh, actually exchanges uh, that ion, the central calcium ion for the lead ion. And this is assisted because by the fact that the calcium complex is much less stable than the lead complex. And the primary source of lead that's mobilized by EDTA is from the bone. Hmm. There is some additional contribution from the kidneys, but mostly the bone. Moving on to DMSA, or succimer. Again, this is uh, highly localized in the extracellular fluids. Um, as compared to EDTA that's not metabolized, uh, succimer is extensively metabolized in humans to mix disulfides of um, cysteine. Uh, the plasma elimination half-life is pretty similar, it's about 35 minutes. Um, as far as like how chelation works, it's not as um, clearly understood. There's a uh, thought that maybe it's a prodrug and then um, there's this succimer cysteine conjugate, um, which is the chelating molecule in humans. and. Um, which would imply that it's primarily, if not solely, um, eliminated in the kidney. But really the chemical nature of that uh, whole uh, process is not known entirely. So kind of some summary of the pharmacokinetics and dynamics. So oral absorption of succimer more complete than EDTA, which has to be administered parenterally. Both the antidotes are mostly in the extracellular space. EDTA is not metabolized, whereas uh, succimer is extensively metabolized. They have about the same elimination half-lives, less than 60 minutes. They, um, no major evidence that it, uh, these cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, and let's see. Um, so EDTA primarily mobilizes bone from, uh, lead from bone, whereas succimer from soft tissue, mostly kidney, um, lead stores. As the next and kind of the majority of this paper is kind of assessing chelation therapy, kind of similar to what Tony's paper was, just um, looking at the difference, all the studies that are comparing these two different chelators, both experimental and clinical studies. Um, I, I thought it was interesting, they do mention here in this first part, like kind of some things that we need to consider, that we need to understand when we're like assessing these articles. Um, to determine like you know the quality of them. First, um, urine lead excretion is uh, the only easily measurable parameter that uh, truly reflects uh, reduction in body lead burden with treatment. But um, urine lead concentrations without a volume measurement is less informative. So if that's not included, it's just something to consider. Also, um, Tony kind of mentioned this, changes in blood and tissue concentrations after uh, chelation reflect not only elimination, but redistribution. So um, that's really influenced by the duration of the lead dosage, as well as kind of the time between the last dose of the lead and when they um, got the first chelator dose. Uh, also, um, if a tissue sample is taken and it's, uh, saying that it's representative of the whole body tissue, um, that might not be true. So for instance, you take um, a, a 
you take some tissue from femur, so bone, and you're saying that's representing all total body lead. Um, if you, or it's the same as all other bones, it may not be the case. If you took like a sample from a different type of bone, it may be completely different. So um, another thing too is, you know, when you're assessing the clinical improvement uh, of these symptoms, it's um, it can be really difficult because uh, there's few objective tests out there uh, in in the studies that have been employed. And then the last thing they note that we need to be taken to take into account is um, the molar dose of the antidote. So the molecular weights of EDTA and um, Seximer are. 374 and 182 respectively. So um, only like equimolar dosing allows for really fair comparison. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are kind of the things you need to consider. As far as all the studies, they kind of go through um, in different sections, just as Tony's paper did. They first look at those studies that compared um, uh, compare e efficacy by looking at urine lead excretion. I'll just kind of get to the summary of that. So when they were looking at the equimolar um, studies that were comparing equimolar uh, or similar molar antidote doses, the conclusion they came up with was the experimental studies using these doses that are similar, uh, molar, when they're doing it by a molar basis, did not uh, involve direct statistical comparison of actual succimer and EDTA. Um, unfortunately, they just compared them to untreated controls, and so really there's no evidence for um, that either antidote is superior enhancing urine lead excretion. There's only one or two clinical studies that have compared uh, similar dose, equimolar or similar antidote doses, and these compared two agents statistically. Uh, um, but both had pretty bad, uh, had a lot of limitations. There was only one, or one had only five patients in it, mm -hmm. and they um, administered only a single dose of the chelator, and both were given intravenously, which we don't give succimer intravenously. Um, the other looked at those that, um, they compared succimer treated patients and historic controls. Um, so they just summarized that these stu two studies showed overall that oral seximer intravenous EDTA enhanced urine lead excretion to a similar extent, but comparing them is a little difficult. Um, the next section was looking at uh, efficacy as it relates to blood lead concentrations. And again, in these studies, so there's six experimental studies, uh, and in five of them, again, they did not make any direct comparison between the antidotes, and they just looked at, um, they were comparing them to control. So comparing the two antidotes to each other is kind of difficult. There was direct comparison made in one of the studies, but the antidote doses that they gave were much, much higher than we actually use clinically. Um, uh, yeah, let's see, I'm gonna move on. Um, the next thing that they looked at, let's see, is uh, the efficacy as it relates to lead concentrations in the kidney, brain, and bone. And they came up with uh, kind of things that I guess we would expect. Seximer is generally more effective than EDTA in reducing the kidney lead concentration. 
That makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, the EDTA is generally more effective than Seximer in reducing bone lead concentrations. That also makes sense from what we learned about pharmacokinetics and dynamics. Um, and there, there's no consistently observed effect of chelation therapy on the brain lead concentrations in these studies, similar to what Tony was saying before. There was only one study where Seximer was effective in reducing brain lead concentrations, um, but I believe, um, let's see, whereas like there was EDTA was more effective in another study, but this was after very, very, very massive doses, like doses that were like in the thousands of milligrams per kilogram, which we don't do. So, um, the next thing they looked at was just like resolution of clinical <coughs> symptoms, and overall, they, um, there's, let's see if they, yeah. Um, there is a reliable evidence for prompt resolution of features of moderate and severe lead poisoning following treatment with EDTA and Seximer, but really there's, a, we have a lot more evidence out there with EDTA in the treatment of like lead encephalopathy, so similar but just more evidence when, as it relates to EDTA. Some of the adverse effects that they uh, report here, so EDTA has a, a well-recognized um, adverse effect of EDTA is severe nephrotoxicity, uh, which they state, um, based on review of the literature, it appears to be dose-related. Um, Seximer, as far as what is out there in the literature, um, Experimental studies only do not suggest that it causes nephrotoxicity. There's no, been no reported human cases of nephrotoxicities um, with Seximer. One of the big problems with uh, chelation is um, when you're chelating lead, you're also depleting some of the essential trace metals. Uh, so that's another thing that uh, they looked at. Essentially, they found that both agents deplete copper and zinc the effect of zinc being significantly greater with EDTA. Mm -hmm. uh, the next adverse effect was transaminase activity. EDTA has, um, they just say one sentence on this. Um, there's been a, the 2004 product data sheet, pharmaceuticals say that mild increases in transaminase activity are common. That's about it. It sounds mm -hmm. like they're transient. Mm -hmm. And, um, this has also been seen in Seximer, although it's been associated with clinically significant tox uh, hepatic toxicity that resolved upon discontinuation of the treatment. Another adverse effect they looked at was skin reactions. Uh, with EDTA, uh, various mucocutaneous lesions have been described, but it's, these are all case reports, and um, this was attributed to zinc deficiency. As far as Seximer, um, there's uh, Occasionally been associated. It has. It has occasionally been associated with more severe mucocutaneous reactions um, that actually necessitated discontinuation of the therapy. And um, in those situations, it was thought to be classified as like fixed drug reactions or eruptions compared to zinc deficiency. So just in conclusion, uh, you can see that kind of meaningful comparison between these experimental and clinical studies. Uh, it's complicated because there's substantial variations in study design, um, the antidote dose, as well as kind of the route and duration of treatment, 
and um, the route and duration of lead dosing. Overall, the both agents cause rapid resolution of features in moderate and severe lead poisoning, um, and it's well tolerated generally. So they mention here in the last line that uh, Sexmer and EDTA are both effective chelators of lead, and there's currently insufficient data, however, to conclude that either antidote is superior in enhancing lead excretion. Yeah, so I mean the argument that you have to use the intravenous form for a certain serum concentration is probably not based at least on a comprehensive review of the data. They probably both work if you give the right amounts. To reduce serum lead concentrations, one may preferentially take it out of the kidneys and soft tissue by assumption, not by direct measurement, which is where we care that it gets out of the brain. Um, and maybe gets out of the kidneys and the muscles where it's stored, versus EDTA, which may mobilize it from the bone, which is a deep compartment that we'll never, ever, ever be able to clear all the lead out of, and I'm not sure what minimal advantage that would have. Um, historically, it's always been said if you were encephalopathic to the degree of acute severe lead encephalopathy, that EDTA should be the drug of choice. It's hard to come up with any data to contradict that, but really both started simultaneously probably makes sense. I think the problem we've run into, when we look at the, the listserv for like medical directors over the last few years, there's been you know a handful of instances where they wanted to use IV EDTA and it was nowhere to be found. And it's certainly, it, it's diminishingly available uh, of uh, EDTA. And you have to be careful because this non-calcium containing EDTA which is used sometimes by alternative providers, mm -hmm. sometimes to quote, chelate those horrible heavy metals that may be causing autism, which probably don't, where they've actually, actually not mentioned these ADRs, but with uh, disodium EDTA without the calcium has caused hypocalcemia to the point of fatalities um, in occasional cases, not mm. mentioned in these studies, but certainly we know that happens. So uh, the preference is if the patient can still take orally is just get them started on Suxmer. I reserve the EDTA for those serious but now extremely rare cases where the levels are above 100 and they can't take orally because they're vomiting and cephalopathic or altered. Mm -hmm. So although we can treat it again, the main thing is prevent it. And I think all the things we've done over the years has helped because the level of the population in the NHANES studies has come down. Um, there's less paint with lead. That's been gone since the 70s. There's no gasoline with lead anymore, which means most of it is from industrial waste near smelters and industrial processes. And now, as we're increasingly recognizing in the water uh, due to aging pipes that are out there and how we treat them or don't treat them to reduce the solvents that are in uh, you know, reservoir water or river water, as happened in Flint, Michigan. So we continually get calls, um, thankfully out west here in Oregon less so than in big industrialized cities in the east, but we're still handle, you know, several of these cases per year where we have to advise uh, folks what to do. And I'd say the vast majority of cases get treated pretty adequately with, with Succimer. It's a matter of just making sure they get it because you can't just write the prescription and have them go down to the corner pharmacy and pick it up because it's a specialty drug at this point that only has to be ordered at, ahead of time.
And then it seems like also making sure that their ongoing exposure is soft stuff. Exactly. Yeah. The, the public abatement surveillance people have to come in and do testing of their walls and their, their pottery and their toys with lead paint in it and everything else that they may be exposed to at home and cleaned up. All right. Great. Great. Thank you. We'll see you next time.